You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate again with the Grass Camp Center for Real Estate at the UW-Madison Business School to talk to Professor Stephen Malpezzi, Professor of Real Estate and Urban Land Economics, to talk about cities before, during, and after the pandemic. Prior to coming to the University of Wisconsin, Professor Malpezzi was an economist in the Infrastructure and Urban Development Department of the World Bank and was a research associate at the Urban Institute. He has extensive experience advising both developed and developing countries on the establishment of effective housing and urban development policies. There's so much to talk about today, so let's dive right in. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Malpezzi. It's my pleasure. Let's start kind of broadly. Can you give us a little bit of background on uh, your teaching history, your research interests, how you kind of got to you know, studying about infrastructure and studying about economics and how you got interested in it all? Sure. Well, it, you know, started off surprise in college when I started in physics, went into political science, got interested in a bunch of things that led me actually not until my senior year to start learning about economics a little later than I should have. Uh, but then I went to grad school and uh, was able to transition uh, first into international affairs where I was studying a combination of politics and economics. And then uh, eventually into economics where I got a PhD at the same time, I was lucky and able to get a uh, job as a research assistant at a think tank called the Urban Institute. And that really awakened my interest in cities, initially on housing markets, but later broader than that. After five years there, I went to the World Bank, where I got to indulge and learn uh, my interest in international uh, uh, issues, and also learned a huge amount from colleagues, as I did at the Institute also, and uh, finished my PhD. And eventually, after about 15 years at the combined first two places, I found that uh, I heard that there was a, an opening at the University of Wisconsin I knew some of the people here and I knew it, there would be a great chance to try something new. And I ended up uh, at Wisconsin for 26 years uh, as a different levels of professor at the, in the business school at the Grass Camp Center for Real Estate and continue to do work domestic and US on cities, housing markets, real estate, and so on. Retired with air quotes in 2016, but I stay research active and in conferences. And when the COVID hit, you know, it's kind of hard to ignore that if you're interested in economies, cities, housing markets, any of that stuff. So that's how I ended up uh, studying this. Well, we here at 1050 Bascom are very, very interested in that intersection of your research and cities and the pandemic. And if it's all right with you, we'd like to just totally jump right into that. Sure. So, you know, for the last 14 months, 
every day, the news cycle has offered us multiple stories that speak directly and indirectly to the impact of the global pandemic on cities. You know, beyond the staggering toll on public health and human lives, the pandemics also had profound effects on, say, employment rates, transportation, schools, housing costs, and so much more. So, like, I, I want to start just broadly. You know, 14 months into the pandemic, what have we learned about the impact of the pandemic on U.S. cities and maybe cities across the globe? Like, if you just had to maybe think of or list the three or four biggest themes that are maybe at the top of your thinking right now, how has the pandemic impacted cities? So there's a lot to unpack. And this is one of those events like the great financial crisis of the mid-2000s, you know, so many things. We're going to be studying this for years. So there's some things we can already see in the data, but there's a lot we don't know. Anything I say today, you might check with me a year from now, and I'll claim, did I say that? Ridiculous. But here are a few things. First of all, in terms of the virus itself and the way it spreads, you know, the first cases, and in the U.S., the initial epicenter of the epidemic was New York City. And New York is the largest city in the country by lots of measures, the most dense, when you think about people per square mile or some other measure, uh, I think metrics, I say people per hectare. And there are some connections, but it's not as simple as the virus is going to really hit home in, in big cities and dense cities and other places are gonna be held harmless. The virus tends to take hold first in a place like New York for a couple of reasons I'll get to. But what we see over time, and I've charted this data, you can find some of it at some of the downloads from my blog, where initially what seems to be a strong relationship between city size and city density and either cases or deaths or any other measure of, of the intensity of the epidemic, that correlation goes away over time. It just disappears. So here's the story. The first cases in the US were probably in New York City. Why New York? Well, it came from abroad. The first cases, although the virus appears to have originated in China, the first cases in the US in New York apparently came from Europe. Why New York? Well, if you're coming from Europe or China or almost anywhere else and you're flying in, where are you gonna fly into? New York gets about something north of uh, uh, 20 million international visitors who fly in every year. LAX, Los Angeles, you know, the next biggest uh, city, I think is uh, on the order of 3 million. It's just a numbers game. The virus moved from China and Asia to Europe and then from Europe into the US. Now, it wasn't long until there were some cases that moved from China into Washington state, and there was another you know, sort of node of early infection. But then if you're in New York, and where are people from New York going? Well, you know, are, they, are huge numbers of people getting on planes, trains, and automobiles and going to Madison or Harrisburg or, or uh, you know, some other smaller city or town? Well, some are, but the big numbers are going to, you know, 
Atlanta, Miami, Chicago. So it tends to spread first to the big cities just because that's where people are and that's where it's moving. But a virus doesn't care how many people live per hectare or per square mile. The virus, if I can talk about it like it's a living thing, that, that's another conversation about what a virus is actually. Viruses just love open mouths and noses in close proximity, preferably without a lot of ventilation. And that's how it spreads. And you find a lot of those opportunities in cities, but you find them anywhere you find enclosed sports event or a bar or uh, a church or uh, a business conference. I mean, we can go down the list. Those are the things, and some of those, you, you find lots of them in big cities, but some of the early super spreader events or spreader events, not, not always super, were places like churches. And actually, ironically, I live in the Boston area now. One of the first uh, really bad spreader events was in uh, Boston, in the Boston area. Ironically, it was a biotech conference uh, in, in the Boston area in February before people were very much aware of this. And you had all these people uh, together that then spread back out all over the country and took the virus uh, with them. Uh, when you look at the data and you look in uh, March, April, you see this correlation between density and size of city that then weakens over time. And when you look at the data now, it's just like a cloud of data. You know, the, the things that determine how many cases you have, uh, how many uh, deaths you have, how many hospitalizations, they're not strongly related to how big the city is anymore. And again, that's what happens as a virus uh, spreads. Uh, other big picture things. Well, something that comes up a lot is uh, <clears throat> what's going to happen to different kinds of businesses. And, you know, there's a long list of things we can go through. Lots of office jobs, people who do the kind of work that I do, uh, work from home, either a lot or entirely. I'm talking to you from our second bedroom in our apartment, you know, which has been converted uh, to my office, but that conversion was done a while ago. You know, lots of people have jobs where they've been able to make those transitions. And so a lot of office space in central cities, famously in Manhattan, which is the, the biggest story on this, that space is underutilized right now. Lots of people are seeing some advantages to working remotely at least part of the time. When we go back to some semblance of normal, it won't be just like the world we knew two years ago without any changes, but when we have so much vaccination, we have herd immunity and the virus is no longer on the, at the top of the front page every day or most days. We'll certainly find more people telecommuting than we did beforehand because we've learned how to do it. Everybody knows what Zoom is and the other products that facilitate this. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot of disadvantages to it. And temporarily in the short run, you don't always see them, but they become more relevant in the long run. Particularly relevant for Wisconsin students would be, you're more affected in your career 
by this move to working from home than I am. Why? Because I've been doing this for 40 years. I know a lot of people. I have a, a pretty good grasp of what I'm doing, though I certainly could learn to do what I do better. But when you are tackling that first or second or third job uh, in your career, that's when you're picking up so much information that you don't get in a classroom, but you also don't get from Google or from even the employee handbook, if, we, if, if such a thing as a book still exists. You know, there's all that, all that informal tacit stuff you learn, all those relationships you make, some of which are, are planned, but many of which are accidental. It's early in your career when that tends to be most critical for your personal productivity and really for you to you know, be happy in what you, what you do. And so uh, I think what we'll find over the next few years is that there'll be a big shift. People will come back to the office. There will be a lot more commuting via Zoom or whatever. But over time, I think you'll find a lot, some of that will edge back, especially in firms that need young people to come in and get to know the business and contribute in ways that you, you have a hard time getting a foothold in what you're doing when you're just sitting at your, your desk at home, zooming in. Now, that's all about people and the kind of work that I do and that probably many of you will do. I have some family that are in the hotel business. You can't teleconference in to run a hotel uh, or keep it clean or feed people. You know, if you're in the hospitality business, if you're in all sorts of businesses that require person-to-person -person contact. Uh, it's a podcast, so people that are listening to this don't know how hysterical my hair and beard look right now. Two days from this recording, I'm going to my barber for the first time in a year, over a year. Well, again, actually my barber has retired. I have to find a new one. She just lost too much business. And we all know this, you've read newspaper accounts and others, you know, there are large swaths of the, of the workforce, especially, but not only people who are, you know, high school grad level, uh, even, you know, pre, pre high school dropouts. These people, many of these people have been hit hard. They're not able to uh, telecommute. Their lives have been hit hard by this much harder than, than many of us uh, who have more, um, let's just call them office related uh, jobs. I mean, there's lots more we could say, maybe one more thing to throw out since I study housing markets a lot. And you did allude to this in your, your lead into the question. We found a lot of things hitting in the housing market, not all of which were anticipated. I certainly did not anticipate how hot the, the housing market would get for single family houses in selected markets, for example, the suburbs or nearby small cities of larger employment centers, where right now I live in a, about a 250 unit apartment building in Newton, just outside of Boston. Things have uh, begun to fill back up, but a lot of people who live in this building went out, left and bought single family homes 
you know, it hasn't emptied out, but it's certainly been noticeable. You know, so in, in some cities, you find rents in multifamily dense dwellings have gone down while the asset prices, the sale prices of single family units have gone up. Part of that has been that this demand hit at a time when people were not moving around a lot. So you didn't have a lot of new housing uh, or even existing housing really coming on the market. More demand, not as many units on the market. And so prices uh, have gone uh, kind of berserk actually. When will this uh, turn down and slow down? I think we may begin to see it now, but I have to warn you, I'm, I'm with a group that every month puts in a forecast of the housing market. And I haven't checked this, but I may be the worst housing price forecaster in the United States over the past year. I keep thinking, it's gotta start slowing down now. If I keep saying that, someday I'll be right. And rents will bounce back and have started to do that. And by the way, this story about rents falling, asset prices or sales prices rising, that varies by city to city. You'll find a lot of cities, uh, smaller cities and towns where rents have been very strong as people have decided, yeah, I'm gonna leave San Francisco and move to you know, a smaller city or town in Nevada or Oregon or whatever. Yeah, I would love to follow up on that. There's, thank you so much for that overview of all of these different topics. And we really wanna dive into some more of those kind of individually, if that's okay. Sure. Circling back to something you said in the beginning about the path that the virus took, the timeline from sort of early, late winter, early spring through now. Um, you were saying that the virus started in big metropolitan areas, especially in the United States. And we saw this internationally too, that a lot of people, especially in rural areas, sort of blamed the big metropolitan areas for being the source of a lot of issues in the areas where the virus was most likely to spread quickly. And so we also saw this sort of exodus in a way from big cities like New York and also internationally in Paris because there was this idea that the virus was spreading more quickly in those areas or that people living in big cities were at the higher risk. And I would love to know if you think that they were right in leaving and also do you think that the Will there be people moving back to the cities or is this a pattern that is going to continue? Yes, to all of the above. So, you know, that's somewhat facetious. A lot of what the pandemic did in terms of population moves and, and so on, sped up existing trends. And so, for example, the idea that people were moving out of central cities and into suburbs and smaller cities and towns city by city, place by place, the stories vary. You know, it's like anything else. There are always exceptions that prove the rule. But in recent years, in fact, in recent decades, in fact, for a century, <laughs> more than a century, you've seen what economists call urban decentralization. People tending to spread out and moving more and more to a, what we'll just loosely call a suburban existence. Now, there are often individual neighborhoods within cities that defy that. And in particular, when you look at cities like New York and Chicago, Chicago would probably be relevant to a lot of uh, Wisconsin uh, students and others. 
you find selected uh, neighborhoods in Chicago that have had a boom of people moving in, often young college grads or somebody a little farther down their line on their second or third job. They're looking for a combination of interesting jobs, recreation and uh, dating possibilities. A common pattern is 10 years down the line, just throwing out a number, lots of people pair up, get married, have children, you know, decide it doesn't bother me anymore that, you know, I'm not going to live close to a couple of cool bars and restaurants. I can drive to them when I want to. I'm going to move to a more suburban existence with my, my growing family. Those individual neighborhoods in Chicago, for example, that have boomed, that were booming in the, the 2000s as Wisconsin grads moved down and discovered they could coexist with Illinois and Northwestern grads more than you might think it if, if your previous examples were at Camp Randall, you would find that uh, what was happening in those neighborhoods masked what was happening in the city overall. Because these cities like Chicago and LA and New York, even uh, you know more middle-sized cities, you know what happens in a neighborhood doesn't always tell you what's happening in the in the city as a whole. So all the time that you were seeing those booming neighborhoods in Chicago, you were still seeing net exodus from the city into the suburbs, and the pandemic has accelerated that. So. We'll have, I think, more people living in the suburbs and small cities and towns than we would have otherwise, but it's not like the pandemic has created this. It's more like it's spread, sped up just like in chemistry class when you throw a catalyst in to speed up a reaction. It's uh, that, that sort of thing. And people will move back. You know, uh, right now, I think the office vacancy rate in Manhattan is some absurd number, like 90%. I might be wrong on that, I should look it up. But it's absurdly big. Well, I can tell you, a year from now, people are gonna, those offices aren't gonna be empty a year from now. The rents may be lower. There may be different people doing different things. Some of them may be converted from office to some other use entirely. But you know, that, that real estate is gonna get recycled. People are, some people are going to move back into the city, uh, just as they did after the 9-11 attack, initial move out. And even in cities that weren't attacked, like Chicago, initially people were very worried about being in so-called trophy buildings that had a high uh, profile. I know this from talking to people working in Chicago and investors, that in early 2001, if you were in Sears Tower, now the Willis Tower, uh, or the uh, Hancock Tower or some other big trophy building, you were more worried about the effects of possible further terrorist attacks than if you were in a maybe functionally equivalent building, but nobody knew the name of it. You know, it wouldn't have been uh, uh, as much of a target. So these things, you know, come and go. Cities have come back from worse than the coronavirus, uh, including wars and uh, you know pandemics and plagues that wiped out huge fractions of the population. So I think cities are not, not dead, but certainly the pandemic has sped up this, this process of decentralization.
And while we're kind of talking about that, you know, cities not just coming back, we're, you know, we're all about optimism here on 1050. Do you think that there's the possibility that cities don't just come back, but they come back stronger? Like I'm thinking, for example, we've got so much planned fiscal stimulus going into cities right now at the same time when not just the coronavirus, but there's so many other challenges that cities are facing with their infrastructure, especially related to managing the distribution of people better to create more like efficient cities in terms of public transportation, or of course, like the looming climate crisis and how infrastructure plays a role in that. Do you think that there's a possibility that cities are going to be able to come back stronger, emerge stronger after the pandemic, kind of because we've been given this opportunity to maybe like think about, revise and improve upon existing infrastructure within cities? I think there will be areas in which that'll very much happen. There have been a couple of books lately uh, and articles suggesting that when you take a big picture look, despite the horror of wars and other calamities, that after the calamity, you also reshuffle the deck and you, you can, I think the phrase that uh, President Biden likes is build back better. You know, for example, I keep thinking of Chicago since I'm stuck here in Boston. <laughs> I love Chicago. I love Boston too. Many of you will know after the great fire, which was horrific, uh, that's when Chicago took the opportunity to build back the city, building up on the rubble, uh, up higher. You know, Chicago's built on a swamp. It was a lot swampier before the fire than after. And while they were at it, they also used some of the rubble to start the process of putting infill in. You know, any of you who are from Chicago will know that in the early 19th century, Lake Michigan came up to, you know, what's now Michigan Avenue. And all that real estate that's farther in was infill. And you know, so many other things about transportation, uh, water supply. Another thing that hit Chicago famously was a cholera epidemic. And so a lot of the great water projects that solved some of Chicago's water problems, uh, partly by reversing the flow of the Chicago River and sending the sewage to the rest of Illinois which is another lesson about how you can uh, basically solve your problem by pushing it onto somebody else. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm digressing there. You know, these horrific events uh, gave us a, a chance to redo some things and, and, and do them better. We'll also make mistakes, you know, and opinions will differ about what's the right path forward. You know, for example, I don't bike as much as I used to, but I used to bike a bit. Uh, I think cities, some, some uh, urban enthusiasts are kind of overdoing what bicycle lanes are gonna do for large cities as opposed to other improvements in transport. You know, I just am looking at how many people are gonna ride bikes. We'll see, you know, I think the, the 15 minute city idea seems a little overblown to me because I think of big cities as big labor markets where you have lots of opportunities. But on the other hand, you know, I'm three miles from my favorite coffee shop. If it was a few blocks away, that would be nice. On the other hand, one of the nice things about having my 
favorite coffee shop three miles away when you retire and you don't get enough exercises. My wife drops me off there and then makes me walk home. So I, I get some exercise from that. So kidding aside, you know, I, I think we'll, I'm sure we'll do some things much better after the pandemic. I'm sure we'll make some dumb mistakes that'll cost us a lot of money in terms of how we build our, our uh, rebuild our, our infrastructure and other things in cities. But as long as we have some processes in place that allow us to learn from our mistakes. I, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about transportation and how cities can kind of rethink transportation, especially in light of the possibility of, you know, an influx of funding with the infrastructure bill that uh, the Biden administration has kind of put out there for the world to look at. So, you know, what is your recommendation, I guess, if there are any city planners listening, uh, what would your recommendations be for cities as they're possibly looking at new funding, how they should bring transportation uh, in urban settings into the 21st century? So I do, I haven't done it in a while, but I have a couple of transportation lectures. And at the end of the day, um, let me just start with the bottom line of what I would normally tell people about what do we need to do in the US to improve our transportation system? There's some things we could add to this, but the sort of basic ones, if I remember them all at once. Uh, one is to improve the bus system in most cities. And in fact, in, in most cities, in fact, all cities that don't already have it, putting in new rail systems you know, uh, is not really the main way to improve transportation. Because in brief, like uh, particularly light rail, basically has the carrying capacity of buses with the capital cost and inflexibility of rail. Buses give you the same carrying capacity, lower cost, and more flexibility. You can send buses everywhere. You can change the routes when populations change. And you can have express buses and locals, you know, as opposed to, you know, with, with, with rail systems, it's often the big problem is the first mile and the last mile. If you don't happen to live near a stop and work near a stop or want a shot near a stop, since most trips aren't for commuting, actually, uh, even during rush hour. So let's see more, but uh, more better buses in lots of places. Um, don't put all your transport budget into pushing rail systems that aren't as effective as a bus system. Here's one that people love or hate a nice big carbon tax, gasoline tax, and I would say carbon in general in places where you have really big congestion. And last time I, you know, I, I lived in Wisconsin without seeing much of it, but if you go to Chicago and get on the Kennedy, then you, then you know what congestion is. Well, the, the way you fix that is with uh, electronic tolls that vary by time of day or the traffic load, which Chicago land got halfway there by going to electronic tolling, but they don't vary the, the toll by time of day which would, would uh, improve things uh, significantly. And here's one that 
doesn't usually occur to people. Uh, tax trucks as a cubic function of weight per axle, because what busts up roads is trucks. And engineers will tell you that it's the weight per axle that tells you what the road wear is going to be. And it shoots up rapidly with that weight per axle. You can drive a passenger car up and down a well-built road a gazillion times, and the road doesn't even know it's there. It's when the truck gets heavier and heavier that you begin to really break up the roads. Every one of those proposals has a very well-entrenched group that hates it. So, you know, it's the economist's dream list. But, you know, that's, that's what I would be focusing on. You know, bicycle lanes, uh, you know, I'm not sure I see it yet, uh, that that's really a big uh, plus for transportation, even in some of the bigger cities. Actually, in a smaller city where land is cheap, it's, you know, might be a nicer idea, you know, since it won't cost as much uh, to do. Those are some of the things I would, uh, would focus on. One of the other things that we want to make sure to talk about today is the inequalities that have been exposed, especially in urban areas as a result of the pandemic. And as we're talking about infrastructure and transportation, we've learned throughout the past year that the group that's been hardest hit economically and in terms of access to some of these things is the urban poor. And so I'd love to hear how do you think cities could work to solve some of these inequalities? So, you know, I think that's really maybe the biggest single question that we really have to address and probably shouldn't have left it towards the end, but brought it up earlier. We did allude to it earlier when we talked about how people who do some kinds of jobs like retired professors or even current professors who can zoom in a lot you know, you basically, there are inconveniences, sometimes more than an inconvenience. But at the end of the day, I'm fine in terms of my career and my income and so on. But I know people, I'm from central Pennsylvania where, you know, there's a, a lot different, uh, let's call it uh, economic structure than in Madison or Boston. Lots of people that are really just hammered. And we all know both economically, but also physiologically, uh, physiologically, but medically, you know, the African Americans, Hispanics, probably the hardest hit group are American Indians who live on reservations. You know what the worst, last time I checked on any of the main metrics like cases per capita, deaths per capita, you know what the worst metropolitan area, worst hit metropolitan area in the US is? And I'll tell you right now, it's not New York. New York's not even close. It's Gallup, New Mexico. Most people I know couldn't find Gallup on the map. They might be challenged to find New Mexico. What is it about Gallup? It contains one of the larger Navajo reservations in America. And swinging back for a second to this idea about density. When you look at an Indian reservation, the last thing you think of is density because it's all spread out. They have very poor medical facilities. You might have to drive an hour or two to see a physician. Jobs are scarce. A lot of comorbidities like diabetes, obesity, and so on. You know, these places are 
nearly invisible to much of America. Uh, and they're, you know, they're getting, they're getting crushed. Oh, and also within a home, often a large intergenerational family where, you know, if somebody comes back from the job they do have with the virus, they're going to give it to their grandparent. Uh, and then that person is in, in real dire straits. So <clears throat> what to do about it? Cities can do some things, but I think at this level, I think we have to have uh, a national response. You know, things like just, I don't have the exhaustive list ready, but you know, the things that first occurred to me is getting money into the hands of people that need it. And we've done some of that, you know, but putting more permanent improvements into unemployment insurance, which right now there are temporary rules in place, but in a normal year, lots of people who become unemployed aren't eligible for unemployment insurance. If you're a, a, an Uber or Lyft driver, for example, just to pick one example, there are a whole bunch of improvements you can make to unemployment insurance. That's something, by the way, that came out of Wisconsin. If you go to our friends at the La Follette uh, School, there'll be lots of people who can give you lots of detailed information about how to improve that safety net, housing vouchers, unemployment insurance, making sure we continue the expansion of Medicaid. We need to worry about some of the things that are happening on the side that aren't directly uh, the coronavirus, but appear to be worsened by it. For example, uh, deaths from opioid addictions have been already high, have been skyrocketing, both in inner cities, uh, but also in small towns and rural areas. Long run, those things you can do fairly quickly. There's a whole series of things that we could do in the long run. And I'm a, an educator, so surprise, one of the first things I think about is education, but particularly focused on K-12 and even pre-K. There's lots of research that shows how high the return is to high quality early education, even before kindergarten, but high quality is important. Just warehousing kids in a room where they're maybe safe, but not much else is happening. That's not going to pay off in the long run the way a high quality pre-K system, which is gonna cost a lot of money, will do. And that means if it's gonna cost a lot of money, that's gotta come from the federal government, not from the city. Why? If one city taxes heavily to pay for a high quality pre-K and another city doesn't, and I'm a rich person without kids, eh, where am I going to think about living? On the margin, you know, those taxes might, might have an impact. Generally, when you're thinking about the distribution of income and improving it, that's something that has to be done more at the national level than at the state or local level, you know, because of the nature of the problem. So uh, the city itself, you know, there are plenty of uh, uh, places where you can think about how can we deliver essential city services more effectively, including public health. So some cities have better public health infrastructures than others. You know, the US, our medical system is completely bifurcated. We have at the high end, look at the development of the vaccine and look at the care that you get 
if you end up, you know, in a top university hospital, best care in the world, but so many people, many of those people on the Davaho reservation are at the other extreme, but lots of other people. The US puts roughly double what other developed countries put into the expense of healthcare. And we get lower life expectancy. We get higher rates of infant mortality. If you go through the basic uh, indicators, there are countries with half or sometimes a fifth or less of our resources that do better than we do on those basic health indicators. If you're, you know, the data are incontrovertible. If you're black, if you're Latino, if you're American Indian, you know, the numbers tell you that you're likely to get less good effective healthcare than if you're white and if you're middle class or above. And uh, we've made some progress in reforming our health system recently, uh, but we need to push harder on that. There's much that needs to be done. And a lot of that is at the federal level, but you know there are things that can be done at the state and local level. Some states have better public health systems set up and run than others. You know, some states have done a better job of taking and making good use of the Medicaid expansion than others. And so uh, I would say education and healthcare are two of the places I'd put my focus on for the medium and long run. And for the income support, things like unemployment insurance and housing vouchers and the like uh, can be uh, improved. All huge huge questions and really important stuff that I think we're all going to have to kind of grapple with as we're moving forward. And there's, you know, so much that I feel like we've really only scratched the surface of this topic. So just kind of, as we're starting to run down on time here, I want to ask, what should we have asked you? Like, is there anything that you feel like that we didn't get to in the conversation today that our listeners really, really need to hear, or just anything that you feel like needs to be emphasized? I think one thing I would mention, so first of all, there's so much, I agree. You know, I hope the listeners of this podcast are sitting there thinking, Malpezzi left out the most important thing a city can do. And I probably did. You know, there's so much. And um, I'm happy, by the way, for people to, you know, email me with some comments if they, they choose to. And I'll think of things later. Oh, I should have talked about this other thing. There's so much that we could list. But one thing that I think I'm of two minds about raising because it gets people ticked off and may turn them off to other messages. I, I'm just stunned at how politicized this event has become. I sometimes compare Korea and the US. I know Korea a little bit. I've worked there and actually have some family there. But I also looked at the data and compare New York and Seoul. They both have about 10 million people. Seoul's a little larger. I'm talking about the city, not the metro area. They're both rich places. New York is richer than Seoul, but by global standards. Uh, but, but the income per capita in New York is certainly a good deal higher than, than Seoul. They both have a lot of density. Seoul is a lot denser than New York. They both use a lot of transit. New York runs, if I remember correctly, 
a little under 2 million people a day through their subway system. Seoul runs closer to 3 million a day through their subway system. New York City, ballpark number, if I remember correctly, about 50,000 people have died from coronavirus in New York City. In Seoul, which had the first infections at about the same time, ballpark number, about 500. 500, 50,000. If I'm doing my math correctly in my head, that's about 1% of the deaths in New York. Now, why was that? Because early on, Seoul tested widely. We did not. When you had a positive test, people, there was a tra tracing put in place going to test the people you were in contact with. And when you tested positive, you were put into, into a isolation for a couple of weeks, sometimes when necessary at government expense. Now, when half the population is sick, you can't do that. They did this early. When you would hit a pandemic where growth is exponential, where it's doubling at the early, first early peak, if I remember right, number of cases in the US was doubling about every five days. If you hit it hard at the beginning, when you can still hold down the number of cases and deaths, that's when you never get to the really horrific numbers. If you're in a city like New York and you've got hundreds of cases, you can trace them, you can isolate those people. If you've got 100,000 cases, how do you trace and isolate that much? But also you, the people have to be willing to put up with it. You can't put them in prison. Prison's another story. That's another terrible place to be during a pandemic or to be a prison guard, right? Those are really high risk jobs. So, and you know what? As soon as this thing hit, everybody in Seoul was wearing a mask. They didn't need any kind of government edict. The masks came out. You know, the idea that wearing a mask is a political issue, it's just, I can't, I don't have the words. The words I would use, you would not want to broadcast over your podcast. And, you know, it's just, you know, this idea that, you know, testing, oh, you know, we, we don't want to test, we'll find too many cases. Masks, we don't want to give up our freedoms. Well, what about the contempt you show for other people when you don't wear a mask? And the contempt you show for the people on the front lines in the hospitals? That, I, I use the word contempt. And uh, I'm sorry, that's what gives me, I'm generally optimistic, but if you say, what am I pessimistic about? It's about that because we've politicized these things, we have plenty of other things we can be political about. Let's have at it on all sorts of things, but wearing a mask during a pandemic, I don't get it. You know, I don't like wearing a mask, but you know, I don't feel like this is like a huge imposition on my freedom, like the idea that you know, I'd be uh, forbidden to send an email or cut off of podcasting or blogging. So, you know, that's, that's the thing that maybe, uh, sorry to end on a rant if we're ending, but that's the thing that I think is the elephant in the room. 
that if we're going to get through this, and we are getting through it, but we're getting through it with many more hospitalizations and deaths than we needed to. And then here's the other thing, the next pandemic, and there will be one. Korea, among other places, one reason they, effect, they responded so quickly and effectively was that they had been through a lot of deaths earlier with other epidemics, including uh, SARS, other uh, bad epidemics that never hit her, her so well. They learned from that. I honestly don't know if we're right now able to learn at some level, our scientists know so much more about how to design effective therapies and vaccines. By the way, that's another thing I love. I think we're likely to see lots of improvements in other areas, treatments for cancer, malaria, HIV. These things we've learned by ramping up the vaccine are going to spill over. So optimistically, you know, we've learned a lot that we're going to be able to transfer to the next pandemic or other emergency. But our politics is getting in the way, our, our uh, uh, inability to work together. Uh, we have to solve that problem in order to be able to get through the next emergency that, that we have as well as we should. Absolutely. Those are all wonderful points. And I definitely, we want to be respectful of your time. So let us know if you have to jump off here, but we have one more question that we have. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, everyone. I, I had several meetings, but yours was the last one of the day. So, well, kind of on that note, like you were saying, all of these kind of pessimistic outlooks that we've had throughout the past year, it's been a very hard year for a lot of people. And so we've been asking all of our guests that come on to end with something that they feel hopeful about. It could be related to cities. It could be related to your personal life, anything that's making you feel hopeful right now. Well, I, I think really the, the first thing that comes to my mind is something I just discussed, which is I think we're likely to have, you know, medical advances that are going to, that are going to pay off in the long run. You had asked me a question earlier about some of the things that might happen in terms of new, better infrastructure, you know, things cities could do differently. I think we will see some improvements. I think perhaps maybe to sort of flip around the idea that I'm so concerned about the polarization in American society, but I come from a world where you know, a lot of my, many, many people could say this, on the polarization that we see, I know and love people on both sides of that polarization. And, you know, maybe uh, there will come over time uh, some healing and some coming together as people realize, you know, maybe these things shouldn't have been so politicized. You know, maybe we'll, we'll, begin to uh, come up with a different approach uh, to the social and political aspects of this. You know, again, it's uh, looking at history. It's an open question. Some people think progress on some broad scale is inevitable. And I tend to be in that camp most of the time. <laughs> there are days when I begin to think, I wonder if I'm right on this. But, you know, we've been polarized before. 
Civil War, period after Reconstruction, you know, some of the things that brought us together, you know, as bad as they were, the world wars and the, the depression in between the wars ended up, I think, uh, and there are data that political scientists gather that show this uh, on voting patterns and the like. Those events, terrible as they were, did eventually bring back the country together in a way the shared experiences of the, of the wars, I think had a lot to do with a period of relative comedy. I say relative, you could still have political arguments, but your political opponent wasn't obviously evil and you knew people on both sides. I talked to a lot of audiences, you know, where at any one audience, everyone in the room has voted one way or the other the last election, just as one indicator. And you know, you, you don't see that sort of mixing. I think we may see more of that. You know, it won't happen overnight, but maybe a couple of years from now, we'll think, yeah, that 2020 plus or minus a few years, that was kind of a mess, but we figured out that we need to come together uh, as a nation and as a society. And we need to connect with the rest of the world too. You know, that's another message, which is, We've been talking about the US, but um, as I'm sure you all know, we're kind of getting to a point where vaccination is getting us to a point of inflection, but the rest of the world has a long way to go. Just today, you'll pick up news articles in the major newspapers about how the uh, pandemic is accelerating in India, other articles about Africa. Pandemic means worldwide, and we won't be out of this for good until we basically solve the problem globally. But I think we have the ability to do that if we begin to calm down a little bit and uh, you know, begin to view people with different political points of view or even views about masks. I get mad whenever I think about masks, but I can't think of the person who doesn't wear a mask as somebody that I should hate you know, it's, it's uh, someone that has a different point of view and they have it for a reason. You know, they've been exposed to a whole nother set of uh, social media, news, opinions of friends. You know, it's not as if everyone who wears a mask is smart and everyone who doesn't is stupid or good versus evil. It's uh, as somebody, I think this line comes out of of uh, some movie from years ago. Uh, we're products of our culture, said with a New York accent in, in this uh, West Side Story. And you know, we are, and culture is very powerful. So we have to basically bring the American culture together again. Absolutely, very a very fitting West Side Story quote to end us off. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Malpezzi. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now. <laughs>